Once again, good morning, Four Oaks. We had a chance to meet each other. I'm Paul Gilbert, lead pastor. So glad you're here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. That's towards the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 3, as we continue looking at the seven churches that John is writing to from exile on the island of Patmos. But before we, we dive into the text today, let me put one thing on your radar. Here at Four Oaks, we have an annual sort of tradition that we call reboot. And Pastor Scott mentioned this, and, and reboot is the way that we kick off the fall every year. You know, we don't have traditional Wednesday night church here at Four Oaks just because, but, but for three consecutive Wednesdays, we do. It's old school Wednesday night church. We do the potluck, the food, the children's programming. We do teaching. And in three Wednesday nights, I want you to put on your calendar August 21st, August 28th, and September 4th. This year's theme for, for our Wednesday night reboot is going to be rooted. What does it mean to be rooted in Christ, to Christ, through Christ as we enter the new school year? And something we're going to do that's a little different than past years with reboot, we're going to actually offer four different classes, four different tracks for you to choose from in terms of teaching. So each of the pastors is going to be teaching a track. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to be rooted in worship, rooted in parenting, rooted in marriage, and um, the one that I'm going to lead, um, rooted in the Bible. Why do we believe, receive, and trust the Bible as, as God's Word? And what we need you to do now is start going online to the, to the hub, fouroakscalarn.com, and registering. We need to know how many kids you have, who are you bringing, how much you're eating, and what class you will be attending. This is such an awesome, awesome way to kick off the school year, particularly if you're, if you're new or just trying to kind of see what's happening, check things out at Four Oaks. It's a great way to, to get to know people in an informal way. And folks, let me just say, we don't have a a ton of opportunities where we gather as a church family outside of Sunday morning all together. And this is going to be one of those times. And so we'd love to, to have you mark your calendars for reboot. But for today, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but recently um, I took a trip with our oldest daughter, Grace, to Chicago. She had some sort of National Honor Society officer board meeting thing, and I went along as the quote-unquote chaperone, which is code for I just spent all my time in the museums, okay? So I completely nerded out while she was doing what she was doing. I was marching through the, the Museum of Science and Natural Industry and, and the Natural History Museum and looking at bones and old machines and those sorts of things. But one of the things I, I discovered on this trip to Chicago is that Chicago is actually very famous for its architecture. There's a lot of tours that you can take down the Chicago River and look at the, the different older buildings. Particularly striking are many of the older churches in Chicago. These are, these are ancient churches, older churches, cathedrals, some of them 100, 200 years old. They're stately and they're majestic. And what's interesting is that you can read about their, their history. And many of these churches are full of stories of faithfulness and life and witness and great beginnings and sterling reputations. But as you get closer, you just kind of sense that something's missing. Something's not quite the way it should be. 
And of course, what's missing are the people. A lot of these older churches, cathedrals, holding worship services where maybe a few people might come each and every week, but maybe because their grandfather or their grandmother went. But what's interesting is that all of the churches at one time had a sterling reputation. There were a place where spiritual life was happening, where spiritual life was born. But in reality, spiritually speaking, Elvis had long ago left the building. Now, as tragic as death is, and it's tragic, what might be even more tragic is being dead and not even knowing it. You know, it happens to relationships. It happens to people. It happens to marriages. It happens to institutions. And it happens to churches. And this morning, we're looking at a church that Jesus, through John, is writing to. This is a church that is on spiritual life support. It is a church, literally, that is about to have its plug pulled from the wall, and they don't even know it. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the church in Sardis and asking not only what was going on there, but what's going on here in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our relationships, in our marriages that we can learn and draw from. So the the title of this message is Reputation Versus Reality. And so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read God's Word together. We don't do this just out of ceremonial triteness. We, We believe that we stand literally under the authority of God and His Word. And so I'm going to invite you to read along with me. The words are on the screen from Revelation 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed. Thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, what we're asking this morning is that you would give us ears to hear. That these are not simply ancient words written to an ancient church in an ancient time and place. But these in fact, are words that are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we want to come to you as your church, as the family of God, and say, Lord, speak over us. Speak into us in our lives, Lord. May we be found on that day clothed in white, your righteousness given to us. Lord, give us um, 
a deep sense of really who we are this morning. Lord, let us put aside the, the game playing and the mirage and the imagery. And Lord, let us look deeply at the reality. And Lord, it might be hard. No, no, Lord, it will be hard. It will be painful. But Lord, it'll be good if we turn to you. And Lord, that's our heart this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. May take a seat. Sardis, as a city, had a reputation for being impregnable. And you can understand why if you look at it on a map. You see, Sardis is surrounded on three sides by mountains. It's kind of like the, the, the mythical city of Gondor or something from Lord of the Rings. It's surrounded by mountains. And in order to get to it, you have to go up this narrow strait where the city is sort of perched up upon a hill. And, and it's just, there's no way to get in. There's no way to get out except by this narrow way. And so understandably, it had developed this reputation as a city that was invincible. But yet, when you read the history books, we know that was, in fact, not the reality. The reality is that it had been conquered not once, but, in fact, twice. First by the Persians under Cyrus, and then by the Greeks under Antiochus after Alexander the Great had died. And we ask, now, how, how in the world could this seemingly impregnable, impenetrable fortress city be conquered not once but twice? And I think you see the the answer sort of implicitly woven into this text. It's because they had lived off of borrowed capital. See, they had a reputation for being a city that was invincible. And because of this reputation, they had rested on that reputation. They had assumed that this reputation, in fact, was reality. They had presumed upon their power. They had presumed upon their place until in the dead of night, literally, and the stories are fascinating about how they were conquered. We don't have time to get into them this morning. They were, in fact, conquered and taken down. Now, it's interesting that if you're from Sardis, you know this history, just like if you're an American, you ostensibly know some American history. You, you draw upon the region, the geography, everything about it that, that, that would be familiar to you. And immediately, the church in Sardis would have understood what Jesus through John was telling him and telling them. Their situation as a church paralleled their history as a city. Let's, let's, look, let's look a little closer. He begins, Jesus, by saying, the words of him who has the seven stars in his hand. Now remember, one of the things that John does for us is that he gives us this picture of Jesus in chapter 1, this imagery that tells us something about Jesus' character. And every time he addresses one of the churches, he draws upon that imagery in order to impress upon that particular church what they needed to hear, what they needed to know about Jesus. And here, John is reminding, Jesus through John is reminding the church in Sardis that he has the seven stars in his hand. And if we look back earlier in Revelation, you know that the stars are actually symbolic of the church itself. And so John is, through Jesus, through John is reminding them, and he seems to be saying, Sardis, remember, 
I have you in my hand. And, and, and because I have you in my hand, I'm, I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm searching you. I'm, I'm peering over you. In fact, I, I know you. It's kind of like when you, when you have a, a newborn pet or something and you kind of put it in your hand and everybody comes around and looks at it and pets it. And, or if, if it's like in our house, if it's a hamster, all, all the women scream okay, and run. You, know, you, you get that. But it's kind of like, wow, we're, we're dealing with something small and precious and vulnerable. See, that's the image that Jesus is drawing upon. He's reminding them that he knows them in a way that no one else does. Now, let's be honest this morning coming in here, not sure what you thought was in store, but being reminded that Jesus knows everything about us in a way that no one else does. Can we just be honest a little bit here? Is that not just a bit disconcerting? Is that not just a bit sort of, I mean, let's be honest, terrifying? See, it can be a, a, a scary thing to know that someone knows every single thing about us, especially if we're walking in rebellion or there's some sort of secret sin that we're hiding, or maybe we're just really weak and we're trying to live life on our own, or maybe we're fearful of being exposed and so we pull away from relationships and the body of Christ or maybe in our marriages, and we can end up running away in shame, can't we? That's a very natural response to this idea that someone or something knows everything about me. Or we fear someone or something knowing everything about us. But see, if we understand the gospel... If we understand the gospel, see, the gospel turns all of this upside down. See, the gospel gives us the courage, the the ability to admit the very worst things about ourselves and to be freed from the tyranny of running and hiding in shame. You see, oftentimes when we look at the broken pieces in our life, we think those are disqualifiers. We think that those are things that separate us from God, that disrupt our community. In a sense, they do. But here what Jesus is wanting to remind them, wanting to remind us, is that those broken places are meant to not lead us away from Jesus. They are meant to lead us to him. See, moving towards Jesus is where we truly find restoration and healing and forgiveness, and Jesus looking right into our soul and saying, I know everything about you, but if you will only turn to me, if you will only confess your sins, will you, if you only trust in me, then I will have you. As we'll look at in a minute, I will put the clothes, the white cloths of my righteousness over you. You see, we, the gospel just transforms Humanly, the way that we think about this idea of being exposed, and it's a reminder for folks as we dig into this text, because this text says some tough things. This text says some hard things. The text puts its finger on some things in all of our hearts and lives. It means, the gospel, that we can stop running. 
that we can stop pretending that we, when, when, when we hear God's word speak to us and say, you are the man, or you are the woman, or that's you, that's what you do, that's who you are, that we don't have to, to, to run to the corner in shame. We run to Jesus. We find our refuge in Jesus. We have the courage to admit who we are in Jesus because after all, as a text reminds us, he already knows. He already knows. Don't, don't waste that. Don't waste that. We do pray for courage today. Gospel courage. Back to the text. His indictment of them is pretty clear. He first of all says, you have a reputation. Now the older translations, the King James Version, other by others will, will say, you have a name. And I love the way that 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 is used. You have, a, you have a certain name. And remember, in the ancient Near East, name denoted this idea that your name communicated something important about who you were or who you are. It was, it was a reflection of some sort of attribute in your life. And so remember, Jacob in the Old Testament, what does Jacob mean? It means literally deceiver. Any Jacobs in here, I'm so sorry your mom did that to you, right? She didn't know. But see, Sardis has a name or had a name, and it was a reputation. And what was its reputation? Jesus tells us it had a reputation for being alive. Now, the word literally in the Greek literally means life. So in other words, you, you could say, you have a reputation for life. That's what Jesus says to them. In other words, spiritual life once poured out of this church. It poured out its theology and its worship and its community and its service and its evangelism and its missions. Think about, you know, there are all, there, there, for all of us, we have heroes in our mind when we think about who's the most influential Christian in your life? Or what's the greatest Christian marriage that you know of? Or who is the godliest family that's influenced you? You know, we have those kind of categories, don't we? Well, guess what? That was what Sardis was for all the churches in Asia Minor. They were it. They had the reputation for life. Now, I want you to think about the setting for a second. Remember how this was going to happen. John wrote this letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They were, he was a prisoner, but he was sending the letter over by messenger. And if you notice on a map of modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, you notice that each of these churches are addressed in a particular order, and they would have followed along a postal route that the messenger would take this letter. So there would be one letter, and the first stop was Ephesus. And the messenger would get up, and the whole church would gather together, and the messenger would read this letter, or the pastor would read this letter from John, and you would hear the, the commendation and the correction. And here's what's interesting. Each of the churches got to sort of eavesdrop on what Jesus was saying about all the other churches. Wouldn't that be interesting? And so, so here, think about Sardis. You're, you're sitting there. You're hearing about Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna and all these other churches. And you hear, first of all, these corrections that 
Jesus is giving each of these churches, but you're also hearing this commendation to each of these churches. And, and if, you're, if you're in Sardis, you're like, this is exciting, this is great. I wonder how awesome Jesus thinks we are, right? I, I, I wonder what Jesus is going to say, because after all, there's no need in being holy if no one knows about it, right? And so, so, so here we are, we're ready. Tell us, John, what does Jesus have to say about us? Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have quite the reputation. Four Oaks, we've heard great things about you. You have a name, a reputation for being alive. The word, the service, the teaching, you fill in the blank. The great children's ministries, student ministries. But then imagine in Sardis hearing these words instead. You have a name or a reputation for being alive. But you're really dead. It's really a sham. Sardis, I have you in my hand, and I'm looking up close and personal, and I know everything about you. All of these other people think something else. They think something differently. But Sardis, I know the reality Do you realize that this is the first church of these seven churches not to receive a commendation? Not even a little pat me on the back, not a little bit of encouragement, not a fist bump, nothing like that. Because the matter is urgent. There is a priority. Jesus doesn't want them to be deceived at all about what he's saying. So he gets right to it. You have a reputation for being alive but you are dead. Because imagine if you're one of the other churches and you hear this. Now remember, Sardis was the bright shining star by reputation. And for for them to, to hear this word, you know that they would have looked around at each other and said, Sardis? I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe Ephesus or Pergamon, but but Sardis? How many times have you gotten that sort of news in your own life? That marriage, that marriage, I never would have guessed. Or that family, or that person. Oh my goodness, I, I never would have seen that coming. I, I have no idea. That church that was, oh my, whoa. It's like going to the Emerald City wanting to see the wizard, right? The reputation as the great and powerful Oz But the reality is he is just a tiny man behind a curtain. Or for all of you nerds out there, it's like the Avengers. Going to Norway to find Thor, right? The reputation as the most powerful Avenger and then knocking on his door and realizing he's just a fat, out-of-shape drunk. Reputation, reality, do not match. You see, what was supposed to be a part of Christ's body, a living, vibrant community of people, was in fact something far different. It was a church about to assume spiritual room temperature. Now we have to ask, Pastor Paul, how in the world was this faulty perception perpetuated? How, how is it that no one around them knew what was happening? I think we get a clue of this in verse 4. Look down. Jesus does tell them, 
Now, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And everyone's thinking, like, I hope he's talking about me, right? But apparently, in this sort of atmosphere of deadness, there was a few people, a faithful few who were sort of carrying the load for everyone else. I mean, you've heard of the old 80-20 principle, 20% do 80% of the work. This was the 5%, 95% principle. You had a faithful few who were working hard, who were a remnant, who were following Jesus Christ, who were kind of out in front of everybody. And it was so easy for people in that church to say, you see, they're doing it. They're doing it. We're cool. I mean, Somebody, somebody will serve in children's ministry. Somebody else will give. Somebody else will serve. Somebody else will volunteer. Somebody else will lead. Somebody else will do it. Until no one did it. See, from a distance, things looked awfully good. See, they have a reputation It's just only when you got up close did you realize the reality. We're in college when it came time to move out of our apartment, and I'm looking at a number of you who own rental properties. This is what college students do, so I want to put you up to their their wares, okay, their ways. And so we would look at the wall, and we know that they're going to come in and see all the holes in these walls, and they're not going to give us our, our deposit money back, right? And so we do what every college student does when you see a hole in the wall. You reach for the toothpaste. Anybody else done this before? Okay, no no spackling, just toothpaste, okay? Because it's interesting, like from a distance, toothpaste looks, if if it's the right color in the shade, it kind of blends, you know, blends in, it looks okay. But it's only when you get up close you realize, oh, there's just nothing there at all. That was the church in Sardis. Now, what is the spiritual condition that Jesus is describing here? Because I don't know about you, but I'm thinking right now, I don't want to be Sardis, right? I don't want to be Sardis as a church. I don't want to be Sardis in my family. I don't want to be Sardis in my marriage. I don't want to be a Sardis in my reputation with my kids. I don't want to be a Sardis on my job. Lord, what, whatever's happening here, Lord, would you tell us Please, because we don't want to go there. I think in a lot of ways, Jesus is just describing something that just happens upon us and we don't even know it. It's almost when you kind of fall into a stupor. Susan and I were watching something last night on a show about someone who was slowly passing away and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with this person and they developed some sort of medical condition i don't know i don't i can't remember what exactly they called it but it's it's when you get to such a place and your body is shutting down you no longer even care you're no longer even aware that you're dying this is some sort of spiritual stupor that is coming over the church they see they've been going through the motions years, decades. They've been breathing religious air, but somehow, some way, they've become impenetrable 
to the truths that they were hearing and singing about every week. See, because they had a reputation that they could lean upon. They had a, they had a, they had, there was a reality at some point in the life of that church that allowed them to attach themselves to it and say, well, that belongs to me. But in reality, they had never owned it for themselves. It's what happens, children being raised in a Christian home. And let me, let me please hear this, covenant children who are here. Your parents' faith is a great blessing to you but it will do you absolutely no good unless it becomes your own. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. Now, you can exist for a time. You can operate for a season. But unless there is spiritual life being breathed into those places, death is inevitable. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. It's when we claim grace for ourselves, but grace doesn't place any kind of claim upon us. See, it's within this context, look back at the text, that Jesus says, I am coming back. Now, interestingly, I don't think he's talking here in verse 3 when he says, I will come like a thief. Now, we've heard we hear that phraseology in other parts of Scripture where Jesus says, I will come like a thief in a night. I don't think he's talking about his second coming necessarily. He's talking about the prospect that at any moment, any moment, any of our lives could be demanded, from us, demanded for us. Is that not true? God has made us. He has created us. We belong to him. He can call us home at any time that he wants to. And he says, I am coming back. But the garb I wear is that of a thief. Now, that's some interesting imagery. What, what does Jesus mean here? You know, we have a security system on our home and have now for, for 15 years or what have you, ever since we've moved into our, our current house. And we have an alarm company to monitoring and... and you know, we had not had any, any sort of issues, any sort of, like, alerts. I know we've had, like, plenty of faux alerts, right, where we've set fires ourselves in the kitchen, okay, or, like, we open the door in the morning and the alarm goes off. I mean, we've communicated with Safe Touch many, many times, okay, but never in a genuine sort of somebody's breaking into our house and wanting to rob us sort of emergency. Until one night, I don't know, it was a year or two ago, and we were slumbering, and in the middle of the night, it is like the five-alarm fire, right? The, the thing is going off. The, everybody's jumping out of bed. The, the person coming over the intercom is, what's going on? Do you need police? We're completely disoriented. We're distracted. We don't know what's happening, what to do. Because, see, a thief <clears throat> is not your friend, is he? A thief surprises terrifies, disrupts. That's what a thief is. By the way, we think it was a frog on the window, by the way. That, that's what it was. That was our thief. But who is the thief in this metaphor? See, and this is uncomfortable for us 21st century postmodern Americans to, to, to wrestle with. But Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. Now look back at the text for a second. I want us to, to understand what he's saying and not saying. 
He says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That word come against, you literally could say, I'm, I'm going to come at you. Okay? Or I'm going to come upon you. I'm going to sneak up on you at the moment that you least expect. See, because Jesus will not tolerate his name being made a mockery. See, when a church has a reputation or a person has a reputation for being alive, but in fact they are really dead, that ultimately dishonors Christ. And so Jesus says, professions of faith and baptisms and raised hands and all those sorts of things, but yet your heart is unmoved, it is unchanged. That's when Jesus says he is to be truly feared. Scotty Smith says this about the church in Sardis. He said, there is no church addressed among the seven which incurs a more severe rebuke from Jesus than Sardis. Here is an example of a bride in name only. She had a reputation without reality, a creed without Christ, religion without relationship. And Jesus looks at us this morning and says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Because we could walk out of this room right now and we could be thoroughly biblical in all that we've said thus far, but be thoroughly heretical because we haven't said everything that Jesus says in this text. What does he say? Back to verse 3. Wake up. Wake up. See, this idea of waking up Jesus is returning, but listen, listen, and this is, this is important, not yet. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm returning, but, but not at this hour necessarily. So wake up. There's still time. Because that's why he's writing the church in Sardis to begin with. If it was over, set, fate accompli, he wouldn't have written them. But he's writing them. Because he wants them to have spiritual life. There is still hope for the church in Sardis. And let me just say this. I don't know your situation. I don't know your marriage, your relationships, work, your spiritual life, the hidden places in your heart. But all I can say is there is still hope. You are here this morning Jesus is speaking a word to me. Jesus is speaking a word to you. He says, wake up. Now, in the Greek, understand this. This is not a one-time decision. This is, it's, it's literally meant to denote this idea of waking up as being an ongoing action. You know this feeling, right? You're, you're driving on the freeway at night, and your wife says, Make sure to pull over if you're getting sleepy, and you don't, okay, right? And, and, and so what are you doing the whole time to keep yourself awake? 
like you're listening to music and you're rolling the window down and you're turning the radio up or you're pinching yourself or you're, I mean, you're slapping yourself up over the face a couple of times because staying awake is not a one-time thing, is it? It's an ongoing, deliberate process and action to be alert. But see, lives are at stake. That's what Jesus says to be is to be the spiritual posture of a Christian. Sober-minded, alert, wake. What does Peter say? Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to conquer and devour. And what does he say? Resist him. You don't go to bed at night and say, we'll check the lion out in the morning to see if he did okay. Right? That's not what you do. There's an ongoing alertness, resistance. Now, what does that mean practically? I love the Word of God. Listen to what it says in verse 3. It says, wake up. How do you wake up? What does it mean to wake up? Well, he tells us. He says, remember then what you received and heard. Now, that's an interesting idea. Re- John, or Jesus' prescription through John, for what it means to wake up as a believer means to remember what you have seen and what you have, what you have received and what you have heard. I think specifically in this context, what John is, is telling them, Jesus is telling them through John is, remember John's words to you when he was with you. Remember his teaching. Remember his writings. Remember John had written the Gospel of John. He had written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John had lived with these churches. He had ministered personally to them. He was part of the apostolic witness. He had given them literally the words of life, the words of God as the representative of God. Guys, it's important to remember that it is impossible to have a relationship with Jesus Christ apart from this book. Apart from this book. And so personally, Jesus calls each of us, remember, read, listen, meditate, take it upon your heart, pour over it, pray it into your soul. Well, Pastor Paul, how often do I need to do that? It's like driving a car. One-time fill-up does not last your car for a lifetime. It's an ongoing thing. There's a word here for us too corporately, isn't there, as a church family? If you think about the book of Hebrews, why in the world would we say, does the book of Hebrews spend so much time badgering the people of God about going to church? I mean, you remember that old Sunday school verse, you know, forsake not the assembling together, right? Well, it's not because they wanted to mark off, you know, perfect attendance record, put your little gold star by your name in the, in the ancient church. It was because this is where people remembered. See, when we come in and, and worship, we're reminding ourselves. We're rehearsing the grace of God. We're rehearsing the, the, 
the name and person of Jesus Christ. We're singing to God. We're singing to ourselves. We're gathering together. We're getting in our community groups. We are, we're sharing life with one another. I think that's just the beginning of what John means when he says, remember what you have received and heard. Now, let me just offer this rejoinder to a potentially defeater kind of argument that someone might put up at this point as you've heard this sermon. Pastor Paul, you're getting kind of worked up about all this salvation stuff. I mean, it, it almost sounds like you're saying that I can lose my salvation. It's almost as if you're saying that if you do these things, it will make you a Christian, but if you stop doing them, somehow I will stop being a Christian. Look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now what Jesus is describing here with these white garments is his very righteousness. When you look at Old Testament imagery in Zechariah, for example, in the soiled clothes, this idea that, that when Jesus looks at us, if we've placed our faith and trust in him, the reason Jesus declares us righteous is not because we're like amazingly awesome and righteous, like experientially. We're righteous because Jesus has counted his righteousness as our righteousness. And his righteousness, it's like a credit to a bank account, becomes ours through faith. And Jesus says, every person that I've covered with my righteousness their name is in the book of life. So, Pastor Paul, can you have your name removed from the book of life? That's really the subtext, the concern, the fear that so many of us has, have. The answer is no, absolutely not. But that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that Jesus is addressing people who think their names are in the book. Maybe they went to church their whole lives. They prayed a prayer. They got baptized. They came to the Lord's table. They, they signed a card. Their great-grandfather was a, was a Methodist preacher. I don't know. Whatever their claim to spiritual heritage is. In other words, there's a reputation, a name. But when there's no reality, no relationship, no heart change, Jesus says, I call you to turn to me and to wake up. Matthew 7, 21 says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Philippians 2, 12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Folks, doing those things doesn't make you a Christian. Doing those things as a church doesn't make us a church. It just shows that you are a Christian when you do them. It shows that we are a church when we do them. See, in our 21st century postmodern life, it's so easy to, t to treat spirituality as a commodity 
and he has it, and by virtue of the fact that he has it, now I have it. And Jesus wants to ask each one of us this morning, do you have it? I know you've got the name, I know you've got the reputation, but have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you have, he says, my righteousness is yours. I've clothed you in white, just like I've promised. You're one of the faithful few. Your, your names are written in the book of life. But if not, I am coming back as a thief. But not yet. Not yet. So turn to me. Wake up. Let the reality match your reputation. Wherever you are on that spectrum this morning, here, there, or somewhere in between, the path forward is the same for you. The path forward is the same for me. Come to Jesus. If you're looking at your heart and saying, Pastor Paul, the reputation does not match the reality, come to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. That's why he's writing to you this morning. That's why he's writing to us. That's why he's writing to me. Come to him. Let's pray.